coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. The Colorado bill not only creates this regulated use system, it also decriminalizes the personal use of those four substances, psilocybin, DMT, ibogaine, and mescaline, not from peyote. What that means is that when the governor certifies the election in Colorado, which may have happened by the time this gets released and people listen, personal use of those substances, cultivation of those substances within a reasonable amount, non-commercially sharing, so not receiving money payment for it, and services adjacent to those substances all become permitted. So that means that in the state of Colorado, very soon, there will be a decriminalized, I don't like to say unregulated, but certainly differently regulated economy landscape that gets created by people who are working with these substances in that decriminalized context. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a conversation series with leaders in the psychedelic community, specifically for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts. Presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I am your host, Eamon Armstrong. First of all, thank you for your patience. We have not been releasing many new episodes this autumn. And I appreciate you sticking with us. And I am thrilled to announce that we will be releasing many new episodes in the new year with some exciting changes to the show. So looking forward to that. But today we are discussing the state of psychedelic legalization in the wake of Colorado's Proposition 22 passing in November. Sharing the most relevant implications for psychedelic therapists and healers, we have the best person for the job, MAPS Director of Policy and Advocacy, Ismail Lorido Ali. On the show, we discuss legalization versus decriminalization. We look at the different tracks for psychedelic legalization from medicalization to religious exemption to regulated adult use. We discuss Oregon's bills 109 and 110, exploring scope of practice, residency laws, and training reciprocity. We look at Colorado's Proposition 22 and the two big differences between that and what was passed in Oregon two years ago. And Ismail shares what legalization efforts look like on the federal level. Closing our conversation, he speaks directly to psychedelic healers. As MAPS Director of Policy and Advocacy, Ismail advocates to eliminate barriers to psychedelic therapy and research, develops and implements legal and policy strategy, and supports MAPS governance, nonprofit, and ethics work. Ismail earned his JD at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law in 2016 after receiving his bachelor's in philosophy from California State University, Fresno. Ismail has previously worked for the ACLU of Northern California's Criminal Justice and Drug Policy Project and Berkeley Law's International Human Rights Law Clinic. Ismail is licensed to practice law in the state of California and is a founding board member of the Psychedelic Bar Association. Ismail is passionate about setting sustainable groundwork for a just, equitable, and generative post-prohibition world. And now, here is Ismail. Ismail Lorido Ali, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I had the pleasure of interviewing you for my personal podcast, Life is a Festival. And I'm just going to flag right out the gate. If you want to know more about Izzy's life story and his philosophy, he did such an extraordinary job on that podcast. And I direct you there. Today, we are going to get deep into psychedelic legislation, which you are at the forefront of. And I am so grateful for your time once more having the opportunity to interview you. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, Eamon, thanks for the invitation. I'm super happy to be here. And it's definitely not as fun as being IRL because our last podcast that we recorded was live at the Horizons Conference in <laughs> Portland, Oregon, which was super sweet. And it was nice to be in person, but this is still really great. And I'm really glad to be kind of deepening this conversation with you. So thanks for having me. Well, and some things have changed since last we spoke, most especially the bill in Colorado, which everyone is talking about, and you likely know more about than pretty much anyone that I could speak to, so we'll be talking about that today. The landscape of psychedelic medicine and legalization, it is so fast-moving, and when we think about ending prohibition, decriminalization, and getting people out of jail, it's not moving fast enough, but it does seem like there are news stories pretty frequently 
that things are trending towards a time when people have cognitive liberty and when the types of people who listen to this podcast are able to heal and support the healing of others with the blessing and appropriate regulation of this nation. Totally, totally. Yeah, the right safeguards, but nothing too oppressive or patronizing either. There's a sweet spot there. I think that we're trying to figure out what's the balance between sovereignty and regulation and all these different pieces. So I guess that's what we'll get into a little bit today. Well, and and you really are at the forefront of that. And you are the Director of Policy and Advocacy for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. If you are listening to this and you are involved in the world of psychedelics and you don't know what that is, I am quite surprised. But MAPS has played a, a major role in legislation around psychedelics around the country. And in your role, you have been up close and personal, including you were in a working group for the Oregon Bill, and I'm not sure whether you were involved in the Colorado bill as well, but why don't we just start with, as an introduction to you, Izzy, what do you do as the Director of Policy and Advocacy for MAPS? Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, the role has changed a lot, so I'll say that I started at MAPS as a fellow, as a a policy fellow, fresh out of law school, which was a nice serendipity. Basically, the way that that worked out was that Berkeley Law had a bridge fellowship, which paid for some of its students to work for public service organizations for their first year out of school. So because MAPS is a 501c3, Berkeley Law actually funded my first year to work for MAPS when I first started in 2015, 2016. And after that, one of the tricks they teach you in law school is to like figure out how to get your own funding for something and then make yourself indispensable. So I just kind of puttered about and was like, all right, how do I make it so these, these guys really want me to stick around? And it worked. So I spent the following five or so years after that year as a fellow as policy counsel, which was kind of like the middle ground between some in-house legal support, though, as you can probably imagine, I was pretty new out of law school and MAPS deals with quite complex legal issues at times and kind of policy work, working in the policy advocacy department, which at the time was led by Natalie Ginsburg, who has a social work background and her and I kind of were the two kind of main policy educators, supporters, in addition to Rick, of course, at MAPS for quite a few years. Some of the things I'm really proud of, our big mission there was to connect the broader drug policy ecosystems of psychedelic therapy and healing. Because for a long time, and even still, there's a, quite a big distinction that people see between broader drug policy reform, ending the war on drugs, transitioning to a post-prohibition environment, and kind of psychedelic therapy and healing. And those things have been kind of at, at different levels of proximity, I would say, over history. It was a lot of education, professional capacity building for a long time. And still we had people from a lot of different professions, from law and medicine and other places, reach out to us and be like, how can we become advocates? You know, we have these highly visible positions, sometimes with licenses that we're worried about the risks for and so on. So like education, professional capacity building. We went to the UN, spent a lot of time advocating at the Commission of Narcotic Drugs, which is basically the UN's law enforcement infrastructure, you could say. It's where like kind of the different global law enforcement agencies kind of communicate about a lot of topics, including drugs. The Commission of Narcotic Drugs specifically is obviously like focused on, on drugs. So some UN work, some work at the federal level around cannabis and other things. And then as of about a few years ago, really shifted into state level politics, which we'll talk a bit about today. But that was something that's relatively new. There wasn't that much momentum around state level efforts up until really like the year leading up to Measure 109 passing in Oregon. So it's like 2019, 2020, and then things really changed. And I just moved into the director of policy position when Natalie shifted into the global impact officer position at MAPS about a year and a half ago. So that was probably summer 2021 or so that I've been in the position of directing the department, which now looks like a little bit of all the things I just mentioned, the kind of education and support for regulators and legislators who are trying to understand psychedelics, a lot of like analysis, legislative drafting analysis, understanding what exactly are the implications of the bills that are getting passed, and when invited, advising on any of these state-level bills and efforts. One other thing that I'll mention that I think is really important is that there's a lot of focus on medicalization and therapeutic access. And one thing that we've been really committed to in our department and at MAPS is also other kinds of criminal justice reform that are sometimes seen as kind of less sexy or kind of less bombastic as some of the other stuff, one of those being sentencing reform. So we've been working to advocate for sentencing reform related to psychedelics for the last five plus years. 
which basically means that even if we get medical access, even if we have psychedelic therapy, that doesn't necessarily impact the criminalization of the behavior outside of those regulated settings. So we're trying to reduce the criminalization, whether or not you're in a regulated setting. So people can have like community use and group use and decriminalized use and be less at legal risk for that. So that's kind of a lot of stuff, but it's kind of this smorgasbord buffet of various issues related to psychedelics that kind of overlap with law, overlap with policy, overlap with the needs of practitioners, scopes, and all these different pieces. So I hope that that gave people a little bit of a sense. Well, it, it does make me ever more impressed by how much you do and how much you contribute to the space. And it tees us up to a, what I think would be a great starting place for a conversation around legislation, which mm-hmm. is this distinction around regulation <clears throat> versus decriminalization. The decrim movement that we saw in Denver, mm-hmm. Oakland, elsewhere, what does that mean versus these bills happening in Oregon and Colorado? Can you just lay out the landscape of psychedelic legislation from decriminalization to medicalization? And we can maybe touch on religious exemption and just lay out the playing sure. field for us so we can talk about these bills. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's funny because... Well, I'll start with the easier one, which is decriminalization or at the municipal level, deprioritization, which is what's happened at at the city level, which is the news you've seen around like Denver and Oakland and a bunch of other places around the U.S. And that's exciting because it creates room for conversation. It reduces the incentives for local law enforcement to interdict or go after people who are performing or personally using these substances. But the key detail here is that criminal law is enforced at this, generally at the state level. I would say the majority of criminal law is enforced at the state level. A lot of it is federal too, of course. But what that basically means is that even if a local government decides that its law enforcement agency does not spend money or spend resources on pr- prosecuting a particular behavior, that doesn't mean that the behavior becomes legal at the state level. And I think that's a key thing which is why when you see the difference, it's really good and important to be moving toward decriminalization at the city level. It has a lot of symbolic and actual impact from a community perspective. But when it comes to legal protection, the real, I would say, bare minimum you need is state-level protection. And that still won't protect you from federal law, as a lot of cannabis operators learned in the early 2000s. But it would protect you from state prosecution and in the case of like Oregon and Colorado, where you have like a affirmative regulated system that the state is actually involved in, you could see how that would like really protect someone from stable prosecution if you're participating in the system that the state puts together. So decriminalization is really the reduction or elimination of criminal penalties related to behavior, which can happen to a certain extent at the municipal level, but really ultimately happen at the state or federal level. So that's like personal use. Can I get in trouble for that or not? Can I get in trouble for growing my own mushrooms? That kind of basic stuff. The second area of like legalization and regulation, unfortunately, is a very big umbrella with a lot of smaller umbrellas under it, which is, I think, why it's so confusing. Because when people think about, well, what does legalization mean? They think something like, oh, we're going to sell it at 7-Eleven on the corner. Just whatever it is to do legal. It's legal to eat trail mix so we can have trail mix anywhere. You know, whatever that means. But I think that when it comes to currently criminalized substances, which could become highly regulated substances like psychedelics, you can look at other examples. There's no super on point ones, but you can look at anything from cannabis to pharmaceuticals, both of which are products that are quite regulated. You can't um, just pop up and sell them anywhere. And some people would argue that you should. I think for cannabis, you should totally be able to grow in your own plants in the backyard and sell them at a farmer's market. I don't think it's that big of a deal. But right now we're in a system where there are like licensure and regulation and all these systems that make it possible to sell cannabis. So legalization is really like, does the government give an infrastructure, not just remove criminal penalties, but does it create some sort of infrastructure that would allow the sale, use, guiding, testing, whatever of a product or of a, of a service. So legalization can be anything from like a storefront dispensary model where it's just like, okay, you have quality control for the product and you have some basic, all of the like labor and employment and, you know, all of the normal work law stuff still applies there because it's like you get people, people have to work, all that stuff applies. So you're in a legal system where suddenly a worker who's working in the cannabis industry right now has claims. They have like worker compensation claims. They can do that because they can legally participate in the system. They're not kind of in the shadows away from all that. So that's like one version. And then another version might be what we're going to talk about a little bit today, which is like the Colorado and Oregon model of legalization for psychedelics, which is not just testing the product storefront, it's like there's a whole system around 
what does it mean to be a, a guide or a facilitator? What does it mean to be a service center? So it's like legalization, but there's all these extra layers of kind of oversight, you could say, layers of oversight and regulation that kind of narrow the activities that can happen within that system. And that's where a lot of people disagree. And maybe we'll get into that a little bit today. But that's where you see a lot of the differences of opinion of like what should be done, what shouldn't be done. What's the right amount of regulation? What's the right amount of stepping back? How much should the government be involved? How much should they not? All of that kind of stuff, equity considerations, all of that falls into like the legalization world. And maybe the last thing I'll say is that within legalization in the U.S. right now, with this conversation that you and I are having, there's really two big areas. One is going to be the federal one, which goes to the medicalization thing that you were talking about. That's the federal government approves it through FDA and then allows it to be used within the states through its own system. And then there's state legalization, which, like I said earlier, does not mean it's legal at the federal level, but could protect you within a system that exists within that state. That's like a decent overview of all these different pieces. There's obviously lots of details, but that's a good starting point. And just to add just a little more detail here. Yeah, of course. <laughs> so in addition to the medicalization route, we also have religious exemption. Right. And we also have the potential for free adult use. And I, I wonder if you can just make those distinctions real quick before we move on. Because in some cases, healers may be considering, well, can I make a church? Can I have my healing practice be a church? I, I hear that a lot in the psychedelic right. space. Can I make my healing practice be a church? Can you just touch on where we're at with religious exemption in terms of legislation and also free use versus medicalization yeah. uh, in terms of what we're looking at in the immediate landscape? Yeah, I'll start with like the latter piece of what you said because that's a really important point, this idea like, well, why can't my healing center be a church or vice versa? That's a good question to ask. And maybe I'll start by setting up, well, what does it mean for it to be a church? So in the U.S., without going into egregious detail, in the U.S., we have protections on religious liberty, which basically boil down to the, the government has restrictions in how much it can, it can restrict religious behavior. And there's a whole bunch of case law and statutes and other things that have led to our current paradigm where churches have religious organizations. Churches is here as being shorthand for a religious organization. I don't mean it to mean a Christian church every time. But for a spiritual community or religious community, to have protection for its uses of, in this case, let's say sacred plants. And the short version of this answer is that there's a lot going on in the U.S. right now. There are a couple of churches, the UDV, Unidad de Vegetal, and Santo Daime, which are both Brazilian syncretic churches, which have permission to work with ayahuasca here in the United States. And then there's a Native American church, which has permission to use peyote. There's long stories behind both of those that are probably better Googled than me explaining them right now. But the important thing is that the last relevant case there was the Santo Diamond, which was a case that was passed in 2009 in the Ninth Circuit, which means that we're now really over 10 years past the most recent case related to that. And as you and me and I'm sure most of your audience knows, there has been an expansion of awareness of ayahuasca practices in the last 10 years that has been kind of building over time, even up to that, up to and before that point. So the increase in people who are practicing with psychedelics in spiritual, religious, sacramental context means that we're now in a slightly different paradigm than we were when there were really just a few large kind of syncretic churches that were primarily operating. So what that means is that we're now in a period, and it's like really the awkward middle stage when your hair isn't short enough to be short, but long enough to be long, it's just kind of weird and poofy. I feel we're like in the weird and poofy phase of the psychedelic church conversation because you have some protection that's afforded to some groups and you have a lot of some groups that fall into like a much bigger gray area and there really isn't that much clarification for who falls into what unless it's like explicitly one or the other so that just means that there's a lot of movement from litigation to direct interaction with the federal government and everything in between to try to figure out how do we protect the rights of churches and that, to me, is one of the more amorphous kind of areas of law right now, where there's a lot of expansion, but not very much clarity. And going on to your next question, in the U.S., we have an environment in which you have really either you're in medicine or you're in spiritual practice. So in other words, if you are a church or a spiritual group, it's really risky and dangerous to be saying, oh, this prayer will cure something or this spiritual practice has health effects. With psychedelics, that risk is even higher because the FDA regulates medical claims. So if you're working with ayahuasca or anything that a lot of people do believe have spiritual healing, physical healing benefits, 
a church really can't be making medical claims because suddenly then it looks like it's trying to practice medicine. So that, so to your question, like, well, because a lot of people ask me this as well, like, why can't, isn't spiritual healing and physical healing, aren't they connected? My answer is, of course they are, but not within U.S. law. So what that means is that, like, if you're a church, you really can't be making medical claims. And if I'm giving any not explicit legal advice, but strong suggestions to your audience, it's that if you have a church or you're thinking about starting a church, um, first off, go to Chakruna and read their 70-page church guide, which Allison Hoots and others mostly wrote. It's really good. It has a lot of really good information. And two, don't be making medical claims because that is a really easy way to be like, well, this isn't just a spiritual practice. This is clearly medicine. And it's hard because the psychedelic renaissance or whatever word you want to use to describe what's happening right now, a lot of it is around healing, therapy, mental health, all this stuff. So it's really, it's kind of a needle, a needle that you have to thread around like, well, what, what are you saying that it does? And of course, I think a lot of people who work in the field understand that from a common sense perspective, there is a lot of overlap between spiritual growth and physical healing. And there's a lot of evidence now about psychosomatic and epigenetic stuff that's both physical, mental, and something spiritual too, maybe. So the reason is because right now U.S. law doesn't permit that. And in some ways it works in the opposite too. It's, it's not as risky, but you know, if you're a doctor, let's say, or like a physician or a psychiatrist or something, and you start talking about spiritual healing, I don't know if there would be like necessarily, you know, particular legal risks to doing that to a certain extent. But right now, medicine, as it is currently practiced, especially in the U.S. and in the West, does not really have that much room for spiritual healing. You're really starting to see them come together. But because they're treated differently from a regulatory perspective, we don't get to like overlap them as much as I think a lot of people would would like to see, given the increasing information we're getting within medicine of the importance of spiritual health and the importance and, and kind of the story we're seeing in spirituality where you can't just leave your physical health behind. Those things are related to each other. So when we're looking at Oregon and Colorado both, these aren't strictly medical regulations, as I understand. Oregon's Measure 109 and 110, which were passed in November 2020 and are set to be implemented this January, these measures set up a situation which seems like adult use. Basically, Mm -hmm. if you're over 21, you can go to Oregon and you can take psilocybin. Mm -hmm. But there's a full regulatory framework in which you can do that. And I think that's a little bit confusing too because when we think about medicalization, Mm -hmm. it seems like, okay, is this a prescription where I have to go to a particular doctor? Is this similar to like ketamine treatments in the US where it's an off-label prescription but it has a certain medical framework? Mm -hmm. My understanding is that in Oregon, it's actually not in a medical framework but it is regulated in very, very particular ways. And I understand that you were actually involved in one of the working groups around figuring out how to implement it. So can you clarify a little bit about Oregon? And then in speaking about Oregon, how does that relate to what's just passed in Colorado, Proposition 122? Yeah. So I'll start with Oregon. There's a lot of overlap, but I'll, I'll start with Oregon just to give us a starting point. So Measure 109 in Oregon passed November 2020, which to your point, I think you're exactly right, created a regulated adult use system. And the thing that can be confusing and something that a lot of my friends and colleagues have heard me say a lot, but I'm going to say again here, is that it can be misleading to consumers and really to the public for campaigns that are creating adult use systems to be calling them therapy, to be calling those services therapy. Now, there's, I think, without a doubt, a massive overlap there. So it's not that I'm saying it's definitely not this or that. But the reason I make that distinction is because right now therapy is a term of art that has to do generally in the U.S. with like a particular type of practice within a licensed framework. And the psilocybin services program in Oregon was drafted in part to explicitly make room for things beyond just therapy. Services is kind of a clinical or kind of a sterile word. So psilocybin services, what does that mean? But I think that it, that's really the catch-all for facilitated use of different kinds. And to your point, yeah, it's like right now in a medical system, generally that's associated with a diagnosis. I wouldn't say that's exclusively true, but in many cases when people are talking about medical use, they're talking about diagnosis-based use, like you go to a provider, they do an evaluation, they tell you you've got a thing. And then based on that thing, you can either get a referral or a recommendation or a prescription, like you said, for a thing, for a medicine, and then you take the medicine and you go on with your life. That may be close-ish to what happens with 
prescription use for something like psilocybin in the future. But there's still going to be a lot of caveats, which maybe we can get into later. For a state-level program, it's kind of a closed-loop system where not only can you not predicate services on a diagnosis per the law, like people have to, to your point, it's an adult use system because all adults 21 and up are going to be presumed permitted to participate in that system. The other piece of it is that like it's entirely regulated inside of the state through a state agency, in this case, the Oregon Health Authority. So the Oregon Health Authority with license, and this will really start happening shortly, January 1st, 2023, so very soon, two years, a little bit over two years after the bill was passed, to start licensing people within these different specific roles. So who are operating service centers or who are facilitators who are getting trained or who are training facilitators or who are testing the product for quality control. So these kind of these different roles the state will create, the state will license to participate in this kind of closed loose system. That's like the first step. I have been serving along with some other colleagues on the equity subcommittee of the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board. So the bill created an advisory board. That advisory board advises the Oregon Health Authority, OHA, which is the entity that actually does all of the regulation. That's where the actual program is housed. So I'm on a subcommittee of the Oregon Psilocybin Advisory Board, OPAP, subcommittee that's focused on equity. So my part of the work that I've been doing with my colleagues is led by Dr. Rachel Knox and Dr. Angie Carter, as well as a bunch of other amazing colleagues on there, has been to review the regulations, the rules, all the stuff that wasn't covered in the original bill had to get figured out. So the bill gives you like a basic infrastructure, you could say the foundation, and then all of the details of what goes on top of the foundation has to be sorted out. So that's what's been happening for the last two years. And then the final rules actually just recently got published at the end of 2020. And that will set up the first round of this program next year, early starting early 2023. Is that the same process as the bill that's passed in Colorado? Does Colorado also now go through maybe two years or perhaps it's shorter perhaps as much modeled off after the Oregon bill. Is it the same process in Colorado? It's almost exactly the same. It's slightly different in the sense that there is a different agency. Obviously, it's in the case of Colorado, it's the Department of Regulatory Affairs, so DORA, which is not exactly the counterpart for the Oregon Health Authority, but that's where this authority is housed within the state of Colorado. But it's very similar in the sense that, yeah, there will be, a, I think actually in Colorado it's 18 months. Could be wrong about that. 18 months or two-year-long period of doing something similar, which is that like, okay, so we have the basic infrastructure for this program in this bill. Now, someone's got to solve all the other details. So starting in presumably January of 2023, there will be an 18 month process very similar to what Oregon just went through of sorting out what are the details of this program. There's one more big thing to talk about in Colorado, but maybe I'll pause here and see does this regulated state system part make sense? I can go into a little bit more detail if there's any questions, and then I'll talk about the other big Colorado thing, which I think is really relevant. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I think for our listeners, it's actually quite welcome because what it means to be licensed according to these regulatory frameworks seems to be a lot broader than if we're strictly talking about diagnosis-based medicine. Because a lot of people who work in the healing arts have not necessarily gotten a medical degree, nor do they necessarily need to. But of course, they do need to be properly trained I know MAPS has very well-respected training programs, others as well. But I think that it makes sense. And frankly, I'm, I'm happy that that's the approach. And I think that I think part of why that's the approach is that it was, in both cases, measures that came from direct democracy rather right. than from state legislation, which I think would, right. would probably trend more towards larger corporations, towards medical. I think that if we're looking at it on state legislation versus direct initiatives from voters, we would likely have more corporate interests, and it would probably be a more more on the side of the medicalization. That's my assumption. I, I like to think so. I think that the answer to that question really depends on who you ask, only because we're early enough that we haven't seen really obvious trends. And I think that what you're saying is probably true, but also I'm probably like you, and I'm sure some of your listeners also constantly on the lookout for where kind of corporate influence can sneak in. And there's just, in some ways, there's no way around it because legalization inherently means bringing something to market, which requires us to grapple with some of the ugly parts of capitalism and the way that products are sold and so on. But maybe one thing that you said that I think is really important that might be something that your your audience is also really interested in has to do with this big 
hairy, complex issue called scope of practice. And I won't go into super deep detail right now, but one thing that kind of I think is important to name here is that so within the medical field, most boards that regulate medical activities are operated at the state level. And there are constant, for lack of a more elegant term, turf wars among practitioners of all kinds of like who gets to do what. And this is true within doctors, amongst doctors and other practitioners, amongst all kinds of medical practitioners. And it's not like, it's just like an ongoing kind of reality within the medical field of like what types of roles get to do what kinds of work. This has really come up in this particular area. And this is why, because when in Oregon, for example, there's a new class of people that is being created by the OHA, these facilitators, these psilocybin facilitators, those people have to go through a particular training. There are going to be a lot of people who are already trained in various healing modalities. Maybe they're psychiatrists, maybe they're therapists, maybe they're counselors, drug and alcohol, whatever. They have their own licensure that already exists. They will also have to get a psilocybin license in order a psilocybin facilitation license to do it. This big question has come up, which is what happens when a person has multiple licenses or when a person with multiple licenses has to play different roles? And what happens when a person who can get the psilocybin facilitator license can suddenly do things, which, you know, has a certain barrier to entry, 120 hours or something of training, plus like an experiential, da, da, da. What happens when they can do something similar as someone who has to go through two years of grad school and 3,000 hours of therapy? What happens when you have these like different training requirements for very similar activities? It's a big question that hasn't really been solved. And in the state of Oregon, what the final rules have landed at was that people who are operating under their psilocybin service license can't operate under their other scopes of practice, which I think is an elegant solution that kind of kicks the can down the road. Because you can imagine if you're a therapist, you've been training as a therapist for 20 years, suddenly you get a psilocybin license. Do you really think you will never use any of the things that you use as a therapist as a guide? If you're not allowed to use your therapy modality, therapy hat while you're a guide, So you can kind of see how that starts to kind of create this like crunchy place where it's like, well, who gets to do what and how you decide who gets to do what? This is one of those sleeper issues that hasn't been talked about very publicly yet, but I promise is going to be like one of the biggest issues of the next couple of years because everyone is trying to figure out who gets to do what and who has legal permission to do what. So that's, that's one very interesting area that I think is especially relevant for people who are in your audience who are thinking about working in a place like Oregon. And that's another reason just to really nail this point down why I'm so skeptical about using the term psychedelic therapy when we're talking about state level services. Cause now in the state of Oregon, therapy actually can't be done within the frame of the psilocybin service facilitator role, which to me, obviously like, is that realistic? Is that possible? Who knows? I don't think so. But just so you understand, like it's all semantics. It's like who gets to do what it's like this really to me, very fun, but very complex issue that I think is going to really affect practitioners, not to mention things like getting liability insurance and all this other stuff that may be available to practitioners who are operating fully legally, but maybe more complicated for practitioners that are working in these kind of like legal gray areas or state legal, but federally legal programs. So all of that stuff that I mentioned, all of that will probably be relevant in Colorado also. We'll see because there's going to be a whole question about like, what does the Colorado pre-implementation look like? So it's a good, it's a big question. But just so you, you know, you you and your audience have a sense, like that's the kind of stuff that's going to have to get sorted through with the creation of these state level programs. So fascinating, and so many threads that I want to travel down from that. But in this moment, we're really touching on issues that are really relevant to this particular audience, which is mm-hmm. I am a aspiring psychedelic healer. I'm a gray market psychedelic healer. I did a course in Amsterdam. Is that going to be applicable here? I'm a California resident. Can I go to Oregon? If I want to move somewhere permanently because this is my my goal in life, do I go to Oregon now? Mm -hmm. Should I wait for Colorado? I think for Mm -hmm. people who who have the dharma of healing in this way and serving in this way, these are super exciting and super confusing landscapes. Totally. And so this, this issue that you've just touched on I think is extremely relevant. 
And I'll let you decide, Izzy, whether it would be most helpful to start with this big difference in Colorado that you were alluding to, mm-hmm. or to go right into some of the other things that our listeners who are practitioners and mm-hmm. facilitators do need to know as they're understanding Oregon and Colorado. So we have a bit of like a big picture as we continue. To yeah, start. I'll go into that first and then I'll talk about the difference. So a lot of the questions that you just listed, you know, that you might be getting from some of the folks who are listening are really good questions that I think a lot of people don't have super clear answers to. Some of them are clearer than others. So for example, in Oregon, I've, I don't know if this is true for every license, but I know for a number of them, you, there is a two-year residency requirement. You have to have you have to have lived in Oregon for two years to receive it. I don't know if that's true for facilitators. I think that's true for service centers and maybe some others. I could be wrong about that. But that's a good example of where living in a place where this, something is happening could confer an advantage for some people because they want more in-state people to be getting trained. Let me just ask a quick question here because there's so many questions. We're not going to be able to cover all of yeah. them. For people who are investigating Oregon and Colorado from a practitioner perspective, are there online resources? Are there well-laid-out FAQs? Are there places that this information is available for these questions? Or is it still kind of opaque? I know that some of the things haven't even been decided yet, but is there a place that people can go? We'll talk about it on the show to what your knowledge is here, but where should someone go if this is where their passion lies? This is going to be a really unsatisfying answer, so I apologize in advance, but for Oregon, the website, the Oregon Health Authority website actually has like pretty extensive, like as soon as they have information, they put it on there. And if you're thinking about working in Oregon, I would just like look on their website to see what's up right now. And if you really want to do a deeper dive, then 100% of the deliberations that they've done, whether through the psilocybin advisory board or any of the subcommittees, including the one that I've been on, all of that is on YouTube. And I think that by the end of this year, so like by late, mid, late December of 2022, there will be a relatively clear set of rules that will be published. So practitioners will be able to read the rules. The last two years has been like, what are the rules going to be? How are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? It's like there wasn't really a good resource because everything was in motion. I would say that once the, the final rules are out for the program, like that would be a really good resource for people to understand like how to actually navigate that. That's for Oregon. Colorado, I would say nothing really yet. There's definitely, there's lots of speculation. Even what I'll offer here is some of it will be based in the language of the statute, but a lot of it is also speculation because this is the first time that programs like this have tried to operate at the state level. So I wish I had a better answer, but it's a bit hard to find a place where you'll get information that's just going to stay relevant because it's just changing so fast. So we'll have all of this in the show notes. I know MAPS also has analyses of Measure 109 and and 110 in Oregon, Colorado's Proposition 122. We'll have that in the show notes. And yeah, forgive me, dear listeners, because we're biting off so much that we can't (laughs) quite fully chew in an hour. So I'm just trying to get as many resources available to you. And so coming back to the question, Izzy, if, if there are things around Oregon and Colorado that you get asked a lot from the perspective of practitioners, mm-hmm. and we were just talking about the residency laws potentially in Oregon, do you have anything else that's just high level that'd be great to throw out for listeners right now, yeah. especially as they're looking for inspiration? Yeah. And actually goes to one of the questions that you just asked, which is, let's say you're a practitioner and you're going through a training and you're like, is this training going to count <laughs> or not? Because someone could go through a training right now, and if it's not an OHA-approved training for their psilocybin service facilitator program, you're still going to have to go through that if in Oregon, even if you've already been trained for 30 years or gone through all the other trainings that exist, whatever, which can be frustrating for people, obviously. So I guess what I'm saying is that what, what doesn't really exist yet is a clear framework for, you could call it like training reciprocity. And I don't mean reciprocity in the kind of like, indigenous sharing of benefits and burdens sense. I mean it in the sense of like, how do the states relate to each other? So for example, with cannabis, there was this big fight around reciprocity for cannabis medical cards, where it's like, okay, well, if I have a card in California, why doesn't it count in Oregon? Why does every state have to have its own system or something along those lines? This is kind of similar, where it's like, well, if you get trained in Oregon, would that grandfather in and count for you if you're working in Colorado? That's an open question still. I think to the high level kind of point that you were just asking about that I think to go to this, it's really unclear what trainings will count for what, which is scary to hear as a practitioner because you're like, well, I just want to get trained. How do I know I'm not putting $20,000 into investment in something that won't actually help me? Now, 
a lot of these trainings will help you as a practitioner improve and refine and get better and so on. But not all of them will count for like the requirement, the legal requirements, which is the thing that where things get kind of edgy. So there's schools all over the US, all over the world, really, that are starting to do these practitioner trainings. And I think one big question is, how much will those trainings be grandfathered in or grandmothered in, however you want to frame it? Like, do these trainings count toward your legal requirement, your legal certification to practice? I would say that as a person working in some of these policy spaces, I'm really hoping to push for that to happen. I would like to see trainings across different modalities and places be counted to each other, but that's ultimately going to be this decision of the, the jurisdiction itself. Do they accept trainings that are outside of their control? You could say kind of quote unquote. So it's a big question. I know a lot of practitioners are asking it. I also don't have a clear answer, but I do know that people are trying to figure out how do we make it so people who are going through good trainings can actually utilize those trainings for their legal work instead of having to just use it in the underground. And if you don't mind, this might be a good segue into the Colorado thing, because I think it's related to this. Yeah, well, and to segue into Colorado, yeah. let's just take a moment to <laughs> say Colorado passed. There were some questions. It was it ended up being a closer race than I thought in my hippie same. sort of my, same, my same. hippie optimism. It, <laughs> it ended up being a little surprising. So yeah, let's transition to Colorado. But first, a little celebration that things are moving forward. And right. one thing I'll add to as we move on, and I heard you speak about this at Horizons in Oregon. We have these different state laboratories. We have a federal right. system where we have these state laboratories, and we are seeing okay, what's going to happen in Oregon? What does that mean for Colorado? What does that imply for other statewide initiatives being discussed in say California or Michigan, Utah? So we have Oregon as a starting place, obviously decrease movement before that. Now we have Colorado. So big celebration for Colorado. Mm -hmm. We love you Coloradoans, <laughs> Coloradoans. Um, thank you. And let's talk about Colorado. How is it different? And what does it, this look like ultimately for the landscape of legislation on psychedelics broadly? Sure. So I'll, there's actually, I would say, I, I kind of buried the lead. There's actually two big differences between Colorado and Oregon. I mean, there's more than two, but there's two really big ones that I want to talk about today. One, the Oregon regulated adult use program is just for psilocybin. The Colorado program starts as just being for psilocybin, but two years after it launches. So we've got 18 months, two years of pre-implementation. That'll take us to, I guess, 2025, early 2025. And then there'll be a two year run after that. So let's say that'll take us to 2027. And if all goes well, I don't know exactly what the parameters are here, then that program will be able to accommodate Ibogaine, DMT, mescaline, not from peyote. So that's one huge deal, which means that let's say in four years, it's possible that the state of Colorado has a regulated use system that includes psilocybin, but also DMT, mescaline, and Ibogaine. So that's like one big one. The other big one, the other big difference there, which I would argue is quite revolutionary is a strong word, but it's a big deal, is that the Colorado bill not only creates this regulated use system, it also decriminalizes the personal use of those four substances, psilocybin, DMT, ibogaine, and mescaline, not from peyote. What that means is that when the governor certifies the election in Colorado, which may have happened by the time this gets released and people listen, personal use of those substances, cultivation of those substances within a reasonable amount, sharing among friends, with non-commercially sharing, so not receiving money payment for it, and services adjacent to those substances all become permitted. So what that means and, is... And that's in, that's in 2023? That's, so like right away, that's even like right away. not waiting for no, 18 no, no, months? Correct, correct, okay. correct. That is right away. Yes, yes, yes. So that means that in the state of Colorado, very soon there will be a decriminalized... I don't like to say unregulated, but certainly differently regulated economy landscape that gets created by people who are working with these substances in that decriminalized context. So in Colorado, we'll have what we've been discussing, this kind of regulated adult use program, and also a system that permits individual group use in non-commercial settings. So you can't sell stuff. It doesn't legalize sales. It doesn't allow for storefronts, anything like that under this program. But you could, for example grow your own mushrooms and have a little mushroom ceremony with your family totally legally in the state of Colorado. 
because those services will be allowed. And the interesting thing that I'm most curious about is that the Colorado language, which we helped actually draft for California originally that got pulled into Colorado and may still end up in a California bill in the future, allows for payment for associated services. So I can't sell you mushrooms, but if I'm, I have mushrooms that I want to gift for free and I have like harm reduction information, like I want to, I want to teach a session, like a workshop, an hour long workshop on safety. I could charge for that. I just can't charge for the mushrooms. So you can kind of see how that'll create kind of this two tiered ecosystem. So, and it's in that environment where I could see all these trainings that we were just talking about, whether or not they're fully legally, whatever, like they're going to hope, hopefully at least help you become a better practitioner. And it's in that kind of like middle level, not fully decriminalized, but not fully legalized area where you actually do have like incentive to become a better practitioner within that system. Now, that might still have some risks. You may not be able to get like liability or malpractice insurance in that environment, right? You might not be able to, as a practitioner, protect yourself in a way that you might if you were in a fuller legal system. So there's definitely trade-offs. But for someone who's just like sharing with family or something along those lines, or, or if you're right now, there's a huge amount of like community use and group use among veterans, among other groups who are just using amongst themselves. That's the kind of community use environment where you could see that type of use kind of being permitted. So that's a huge difference between Colorado and Oregon. And I was really glad to see that. That's one of the reasons I was really glad to see that 122 passed. There was a lot of good critique. I think there's a lot of things we need to be tracking. But the decriminalization of personal use, the ability to grow at home, like if there's anything that's going to push back or like kind of avoid the power of corporate influence, it's going to be being able to grow mushrooms at home. Like, yeah, some people are going to want their super nuclear atomized nasal spray of psilocybin, isolate, whatever. Like they're going to want the cool stuff. But some people are just going to grow it at home. And if you can grow it at home, then you don't need to go to the wherever and spend however much money on the thing. You can just grow it at home. So to me, that's a really powerful kind of way to keep access to care and access to medicine in the hands of the people instead of just making it all this kind of highly regulated corporate system. To me, I'm like, we should have both. I don't think that they're, I don't think that they're mutually exclusive or have to be. Well, that's one thing I've learned from you, Izzy, is that you're a big fan of having all the things. <laughs> like, let's try all the approaches. Let's do religious exemption. Let's do, yeah. let's do adult use. But you touched on something too, just about equity, um, uh-huh. kind of a nod to equity in these initiatives. Is there anything in Oregon or in Colorado that explicitly has any support for marginalized communities? Insurance doesn't cover psychedelics medicinally. These services are often very expensive. Gray market services are are typically quite expensive. If you're looking at like the MAPS, FDA clinical trials for MDMA for PTSD, very expensive. And I'm curious if these measures contribute to equity in terms of access to psychedelics, which is something that I think is is so important as we look to healing and growth for all people. Definitely. So the short answer is there are there is more included within Prop 122 explicitly in the language around equity than there is in Measure 109 in Oregon. A few different reasons why that might be. I would say that I think that as we better understand how to create systems that allow for and create room for equity within the systems, we're going to refine what policies actually get to that point. So that's a really critical piece because I think that not everyone knows exactly how to do equity here. And I say that myself included. I think that some of the pieces feel more obvious than others. So, for example, ensuring that the cost is low, both for licenses, so prospective licensees that want to participate, the lower the barrier to entry, the more likely it is that people will be able to participate. And also the cost of services, to your point, which is like, how much will it actually cost to get the services? There's a whole milieu we could go into here on insurance, like you mentioned, a few other things. And that's the thing that I think is concerning which is to say that like, I could see a version of reality where the attempt to create a highly regulated system at the state level cr- makes the cost of use of participating in the system so high that it creates like a minimum barrier to entry. And that's, I think, something a lot of people are, are fearful of. I think there's a lot of concern around that. There's a couple things that have been done in Colorado in particular that like I think would start chipping away at that. So for example, in Oregon, there's a maximum limitation of five service centers. So 
no company can own more than more than five service centers or it might even be five licenses. Then Colorado has a similar restriction. So that's where you see, okay, so maybe that means that there won't be massive corporate consolidation. Who knows? Maybe there's a loophole to that too. Other things, I think in Colorado, you actually have record ceiling provisions, which don't exist in in 109 in Oregon. So that's kind of to your early, early point around, yeah, there aren't that many people in jail for psychedelics. It's true, thankfully. But there are people with criminal records that want to be expunged and so on. So that's a positive thing. And I think the Colorado bill also explicitly requires tiers of licenses that are available to marginalized people or lower cost. So that that was not baked into 109 in Oregon. And I think Colorado does attempt to, with its language, create more room for requiring access. My big question is more of a practical one, which is like, what does that mean, functionally speaking? Because there's going to be a cost of running the program. And where the state gets the money to run that program is a question that I think does it come from the fees of licensees. Does it come from other kinds of tax dollars? That's the kind of stuff that kind of remains to be seen with respect to like how low can you actually make the cost? One other last thing I'll say on this is that I think that one promising option in the absence of insurance coverage is patient assistance funds. And I think it's probably, again, this is not really like a super in-depth legal analysis and I've been kind of looking into it, asking around about it, but it seems like a nonprofit that's operating within the state may be able to offer kind of scholarships or that kind of stuff. Now, it would be challenging for a federal nonprofit like a 501c3 to do so because the IRS is a federal system that's creating a federal tax exemption through the 501c3 designation. But then if you're operating with federally activity that's legal at the state level, there's kind of a conflict there. So I think that there's a question of whether or not a state-run program could offer like a patient's assistance program or that kind of support from a cost perspective. But there's no question that getting in early is going to be a risk in the sense that like we don't know if it's commercially viable. We don't know what kind of insurance or malpractice coverage there'll be. We don't know what the liability will, will look like. So it's definitely a place where the people who want to participate have to want to participate. And I think that there's a sense of figuring out what are the incentives to make it so people can participate in a system that we're kind of building as we go. So that, that to me is the biggest equity step. And to me, and maybe I'll say one more thing, which is the other big piece of equity is making sure that there's options for community, personal, interpersonal use that don't require the modulation of the government, which to me is where the home grow stuff comes in. That to me is like, the number one provision for equity, in my opinion, is home grow. Even though people don't always see the connection there, it's like, well, because that means that people can grow their own medicine. And that that is like, a, that's so significant, in my opinion. It allows, it allows people to have a lot more autonomy and sovereignty over, over how they navigate. And then the rest is like, how do you keep costs down for training on all this stuff? And that's the same question we see in all of the nonprofit world. Philanthropy, subsidies, sliding scales, the kind of stuff we already know about. And th- that's... I think an incomplete solution, but it's kind of what we're trying to use to sort through right now. So I love that these state initiatives are these laboratories and we have initiatives being discussed in other states as well. And I think we'll see Colorado passing is an indication of things moving nationally, which I think is really encouraging. And yet we still have this question of the federal government. So I have two questions here for you around the federal government, which is one, if you are operating in a state where these initiatives have been passed, can the federal government prosecute you? Because I, I, I understand with decriminalization, it's still not decriminalized on a federal level. So if a federal agent arrests you, then you are arrested on federal the, level. The answer is you yes. clarify that. The answer is yes, they can. And in fact, so can state. E- even if you're state legal, the federal government can. So yes, in, in any of these versions of reality, yes, the federal government can prosecute. They, they don't often for like personal use and possession, but they can. So th- so then that begs the question, what are we looking at with federal legislation? Are there any initiatives? I know that MAPS has been working on the federal level for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. That's through the FDA. Mm-hmm. But I guess you are probably the person best to ask about this. What can we anticipate around federal legislation around psychedelic medicine? This is the bajillion dollar question. So about, you know, at the beginning of November, so very recently, 
a caucus was announced, Representatives Bergman and Luke and Curia in Congress, which ostensibly will be working to educate and build awareness around psychedelic therapy and research specifically. So not decrim, not regulated adult use, but really therapy and research. And that's exciting because I think that the most likely move at the federal level for legislation in the next one to three years is going to be around funding for research. A lot of the cool stuff that we just talked about at the state level, the federal government is not ready for. So most of the focus of the federal government right now and most of the advocacy that's happening toward the federal government is around funding for research. Right now, a lot of, almost all really, like the overwhelming majority of the research that happens within psychedelics is privately funded, whether through philanthropy or now more recently through kind of private equity or um, investments. And that, that just means that the incentives around doing the research can be skewed by industry. And that's one of the big concerns in general within healthcare and how research gets done. So there's definitely a, a desire. And I think, dare I say, likelihood that there could be federal funding available through legislation at some point in the next couple of years, I hope. So I would say that's like the golden goose, if you will. That's like people have been pushing for that for a long time. National Institute of Health and other institutions that the federal government are, I think, highly incentivized, could be highly incentivized to do this kind of research because of the money it could save in the long run, because of the lives it could save in the long run, all of the above. And I'm really encouraged to see more education happening within Congress because it really has to start there. It can't start with like, here's our 10-point plan for the future of prohibition and how we're going to end it and da-da-da. Like a lot of people acknowledge, including in Congress, including on both sides of the aisle, really do recognize that there is a problem with the way the war on drugs operates and that we haven't really solved the drug issue through that system. So I think the place where we're at now is like, okay, what is the, what are the possible solutions? And that's kind of where the education, dialogue, discussion parts come in. So I think that that would be the biggest thing. And in addition to that, I could also see some changes being made in like the way that regulations limit research. So not just the funding side, but when there's like additional barriers to entry, kind of simplification of certain barriers to entry or reduction of them to make it easier for researchers to participate in research. So I would say like you, you kind of see a theme there, right? Where it's like therapy there, but really it's like research clinical use is really like the main area of focus for the federal government. And I think all of the other stuff we're going to see with respect to kind of legalization or decrim or adult use or other creative states, a lot of that's going to happen at the state level in the near future and kind of zoom out from there. Izzy, you're such a wealth of knowledge on this. And there's so many additional questions <laughs> I want to ask you. We are almost at time today for our conversation. Ooh, that was dense. Um, wow. That I fast. know, right? <laughs> That went fast and we covered a lot and I'm grateful for your time. The way that we end this podcast is that I offer guests the opportunity to speak directly to psychedelic practitioners, mm. those aspiring to be healers in this space. And considering you've worked as the chair of the Student for Sensible Drug Policy Board of Directors, you've been involved with MAPS for now, we're looking at six years, mm -hmm. you are deeply in this and you live and breathe this, and you're a very eloquent speaker on these matters. So I just want to give you space to kind of close our conversation, to speak directly to those who are most interested in supporting the healing with these medicines, mm -hmm. whether they be practitioners, whether they be facilitators of any stripe. These are our listeners, also some psychedelic enthusiasts as well. I don't mm -hmm. want to discount you, but th that's our audience. And I just want to give you a moment to speak directly to them, however you wish, words of encouragement, specifics about what you might, mm -hmm. what you might do if you were in their shoes, a anything on your deep wealth of knowledge that you want to share with that population. Yeah, I've got a couple of things. So one, for a long time, you know, I started with Students for Sensible Drug Policy in like 2013, almost 10 years ago and had been following kind of psychedelic research even before that, you know, when I was a teenager in early 20s. And for the longest time, the cool thing to do was to try to become a psychedelic researcher. Like all of the other drug policy people are around, they were like, they want to be psychedelic researchers. And now I think it's really cool that the cool thing to do is to become a psychedelic therapist. Because we need, I love research, don't get me wrong. I'm not a scientist, but I do respect it. 
but like we need more healers than we need researchers. And I don't know if that's controversial or not, but that is really my strong opinion. So I actually love that there's so much focus on bringing these modalities forward because we really need the help like we all do. So that's the first thing. And then the second, so just, I want to commend people for, for taking that path, actually. That's the first thing I want to say, because it's not easy. It's very confusing. We just spent an hour talking about how confusing it is legally. And that's just the legal confu- confusion, not even talking about the medical stuff or all this other. It's a confusing area. It's a novel, in some ways, novel area. Obviously not in others. So that's the first thing. And then the second has to do, you know, for a long time, I've been, I think I was, I was recently memefied actually saying this, but I've been talking for a while about like the tension between the urgency of need and the quality of care. And as someone who's who's been surrounded by, over the course of my life, many people who've struggled a lot with drugs, without drugs, with psychedelics, without psychedelics, with family, life, kids, all of the above. I really feel, and I'm sure a lot of people who are attracted to this field, like really feel the suffering that people are experiencing. And I understand why people are so desperate for solutions. And I think that it's really important as practitioners to really really be careful about that. It's very easy for desperate people to seek a silver bullet. But I think part of our responsibility as practitioners in the space is to be very honest, which means looking beyond the medical paradigm, which means looking beyond diagnosis and curing and da-da-da-da kind of like language of medicine and looking at some of the more like complex, spiritual, esoteric aspects of this. Because there's no way around the fact that when you're dealing with big existential questions that have to do with, yeah, it's depression, but it's fear of dying. That is a large existential question that's not just packaged in a mental health diagnosis. So I just think it's really important that people, as they rush and run to get qualified, get their skills, all that, to support their community, which I think is really important, noble work that they also really, really spend time to do the inner individual work of understanding what their own needs, motivations, and ethics are. And I think that the really big conversation around ethics in psychedelic healthcare and psychedelic therapy over the last few years is super important because it's very easy to operate, even, even in our best intentions, to operate out of a place of imbalance just by virtue of the world that we live in. So even people who think they're doing really good might be doing harm because they're coming out of a certain con- kind of conditioned worldview and they're not even able to see the ways that, and we, I'll, I'll speak for myself as well, like we may not always see how the ways that our best intentions can still cause harm. So I think that for practitioners who are really working toward this because they want to help people, taking the extra time to reflect, to understand where we individually and as individuals are imbalanced will allow for higher quality care in the long run because it'll allow us to look at our shadow, look at the things that are most likely to cause the harm down the line. I really believe that imbalance, a lot of ethical violations, when they're not actively malicious because of bad people, a lot of ethical violations happen by accident or by mistake. And that doesn't mean that they're not serious violations, but they don't. But th- that's different to me than like a, an active malice that I think comes out of some things. And I think that that's just as dangerous, though. Like, it doesn't mean that it's not as bad. It's just as dangerous to make a mistake that can have a violation like that. So it's really important when it comes to quality of care to be looking internally at oneself, at, like, what is it that motivates me to be here? And how do I make sure that I'm able to offer the highest quality of care that I can? Clarifying and understanding what exactly are my my own motivations here. That's a little bit of a heavy reminder, but it's really important because it's really important that when we step into this role of trying to support people through their deepest traumas through these complex existential questions that we do that in integrity and i think that's like maybe the last thing i'll say which is how important it is to have integrity to the extent that we can obviously we all make mistakes but i really hope that people can be in that and stay stay true to that even with all the pressure of capitalism and this confusing legal regulatory environment and all of the above yeah Thank you, Izzy. Always so elegant. Elegant. Eloquent. Always so elegant and eloquent. I'll take it. I'll Um, take it. (laughs) Really grateful for your time and grateful for all of your insight here. And so for the listeners, we'll have a lot of stuff in the show notes based on what we've discussed today. But just where can they follow maps? Where can they follow you? How can people be more connected? And yeah, just be able to track your journey and the work that you're doing as well. 
Yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Sage, S-A-G-E underscore Izzy, Sage Izzy. I'm a co-founding board member of the Psychedelic Bar Association, which we didn't talk about today, but is a fun whole thing. You can look it up, www.thepsychedelicbar.org. I'm on the board of directors for Alchemy Community Therapy Center, formerly known as Sage Institute here in the Bay Area. So those are, I would say, like all great kind of initiatives to take a look at. And you can find maps on literally every social media that exists, I think except for TikTok, although that might change soon, generally at maps or at maps news, depending on the platform. So definitely follow along. I think that 2023 is going to be a really big year for all of these topics around legalization and regulation, how we navigate all this stuff. And hopefully it's also a year where more healing, more joy, more celebration, maybe another podcast or two. <laughs> I, I'll always podcast you, Izzy. Let's do it. Let's I'll, do it. I, I love talking to you. Yeah, may may we have more joy, more healing, and and may people find sustainable practices that allow them to be nourished while they are offering these services. And I really hope that what's going on in Colorado and Oregon set the stage for nationwide change in drug laws broadly, specifically in this case in terms of healing and these particular molecules we've discussed, but I hope that it leads to change broadly. And let's end prohibition. And we are all doing our part. Some are doing a lot more than others. And Ismail, you are doing such good work. And I'm grateful for your friendship and I'm grateful for your time. Thank you so much, Eamon. This was a blast. Blessings to all the listeners. Blessings to you. Have a great rest of your year. You too. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.